Good morning. I'm speaking directly to those of you who are um, in the Houston area, but staying at home. You're putting your souls at risk. <laughs> Fire and brimstone. So, um, next Sunday in here will be a miracle. Some people refer to them as magic tricks. Next Sunday. They're miracles. They are miracles. So, would you, uh, as a courtesy to other people, make sure your cell phone is off? And as always, uh, thanks to those people who are sitting back there to make this uh, happen. Um, occasionally, I get from uh, Squarespace, which is uh, one of the streaming services we use, uh, indication of how many people are on. I never check it. Somebody told me a long time ago, never Google yourself. So I don't do that. But they send a, a, a thing that says, you had a spike in the number of people attending which is good, I'm glad. I mean, a number of people who are online, right? This is good. But if you're in the Houston area, again, show up, be here. Get with these nice people, see how they are. So uh, let's begin as we do in silence, do whatever you need to do to bring yourself in this space. Let's be grounded and be here, be open to what wants to happen here. You might want to begin by expressing gratitude that you have just for the, the ability to be here and for this time and for our lives. <clears throat> and I will offer a um, few words that I got from the Vipassana meditation, which is may you be happy, may you find what you're looking for here, and may you have peace and joy. So in this time, we honor the values of love and truth and freedom, and we do so with the belief that what we do here benefits all people everywhere. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Before uh, I, I get into the topic for today, um, I want to begin my our time by expressing my really deep gratitude and appreciation to and for you and for this church. Um, for those of you, I kid you, but uh, for those of you who attend and I call pajama people, um, I, and I wish I had the power to make what I am about to say go out to the whole United States. Um, last week in this space, a little afternoon, St. Paul's had its pride picnic in this space. And I know, I know there are a lot of things in terms of social justice and awareness that this church and in, in, in organized religion needs to address um, and to accomplish, but I am so proud of this church, and, and I am so grateful. Um, last week, this room was full of people, I mean full of people, who are in full support of the LBTQ plus community. And um, I show you a picture that Pam Poole sent me of one of the people who came to the picnic uh, last week. I do not know that I would trust this fellow. Uh, that's my pride outfit. And I, I, there were three members of this community of faith. Uh, a politician, uh, a doctor, and a person who's on our staff 
who got up and gave testimonies. I don't know what else you call them, but in the Baptist church, we would call them testimonies. And um, they talked about how accepted and affirmed they have felt over the years of their involvement uh, in this church and their personal stories involving their personal histories and how they got here was so moving. And those of you who were here know what I'm saying is the absolute truth. It was just a wonderful occasion. And there was in that gathering a litany that we did. And uh, we're not going to do it as a litany, uh, litany but I want to read it to you. I want you to be able to have this. If you are gay, straight, bisexual, lesbian, pansexual, or queer, if you're black, brown, or anywhere in between, if you are indigenous or immigrant friend, if you're clergy or lay people, cis male or female, non-binary or transgender, young or old, abled or differently abled, no matter what you believe or what you doubt, no matter what you count on or what you question, you are not only welcome here, you are celebrated here. In this space, we acknowledge that you are a gift of the Creator and an individual wonder of God's creation. Together we are a holy people, and this is a holy gathering because we are gathered in the name of the one who makes us. We are gathered in the name of the one who is holy. Thanks be to God. So, thank you. Thank you for making this a place where that's possible. And uh, the affirmations that were made by our senior pastor at the end of that gathering last week about what's in store for the future should make everybody feel confident and proud and grateful. I'm just, I'm grateful for this oasis. It may be a bubble, but it's a wonderful bubble and I'm so grateful for it. By the way, the new graphic that you're seeing in the, um, and you'll see this every Sunday at the beginning. Bob Garcia did. Bob, hold your hand up who did this graphic for us. Thank you for that. This was created in response to the Rumi poem that Holly Huddley closed our time with last week. And um, I don't know if you know this or not, but these overhead slides that you see, overhead slides. Shows my age. These slides that you see are um, are available on the on the web on Tuesdays, so you can go and download them if you want to. So I am calling this time today seeking to have a myth understanding, and I hope we do not have a misunderstanding about having a myth understanding. But if we're going to understand what is ahead for us in the Gospel of John. We have to understand myth and its functions in our lives. Because what we're getting ready to do in the Gospel of John, and next week I'll just give you a heads up, we're going to begin to delve into the notion of resurrection, which is not, by the way, unique to the Christian religion, but we'll, we'll get to that. But you won't get resurrection if you don't get myth first. So let's begin here. We are flung into this world into a context not of our choosing. A lot of people call this fate. I know there are some people, some religions, who believe that we choose our parents. That's always seemed to me to be a kind of cruel thing to assert because some people are born into a very abusing, neglectful, or even non-existent parenting situations. But for those of us who are lucky enough to get here, we're very likely um, put in a place where we were surrounded by people who were more than happy to tell us who we were. I don't think as an adolescent, when I started going out, as a child from my home, I ever left the house without one or both of my parents saying to me, now son, remember who you are. Like I would forget? I don't know. You know what they meant. So no matter how you measure it, we are not here on this earth very long. And 
whether we ever during this brief time show up as us is entirely up to us. Sadly, there are many people who are never aware that the self they are is a self that is beyond who they think they are. One of uh, Carl Jung's best-known sayings is, if you don't know who you are, the world will tell you. It's not easy to figure out who you are. From the very beginning of our survival, first physically and then psychologically, our survival depends on adapting to the circumstances in which you're born. And I was taught in shrink school that when an infant comes into the world, that infant on exiting the womb asks two questions. The first one is, who's in charge here? And the second one is, how do I get along with that person? And the infant is very skilled in learning how to do what I just said. So it is virtually impossible for anyone in any culture not to become a servant of her or his environment. I did not ask to be given the gender roles, racial, religious identity that I received as a white male in Tennessee, but I got them. And to deviate from them felt awful, just awful. I was raised in an environment that said it was morally a sin to go to the movies on Sunday, right? That was what I was taught. So the first time I did that, I felt awful. It's how powerful those early lessons are. So... Looking back on it now, it's, rather, it's jarring, for example, to see that I was taught um, in this town in Tennessee uh, to look down on the Japanese. We were at war with the Japanese at that time when I was a, a kid. And we looked down on the Japanese because they had this commitment to saving face. And that's why you couldn't trust them, right? And yet, one of the strongest codes in the culture that I grew up in was, now, what would people think? What would people think about what you're doing? And now, I live in a world, and so do you, where all that's been deconstructed, or it can be. And I can look back now and see that the religion into which I was placed was mythologically constructed like all religions are. Now, I was told it was true, and because I believed the people around me, and I wanted to be accepted, I believed it was true. If I questioned it, I was told, well, it's in the Bible. That's how we know it's true, which raises the whole issue of authority, which we'll get to as we go forward. Now, here's a real double-edged sword. The more conscious we become, the more aware we become of the unconscious influences that have shaped us. That sentence makes sense? And which will continue to shape us unless we become aware of them. Now, some of these unconscious influences are useless. Some of them are as wrong as they can be. Some are not. And it's the task of the growing person to become aware of what these are and to be able to distinguish between what is wise and useful and what is not. Does this value, this practice, this experience of myself have me living in an enlarged world or not? Now, one of the things I've learned in doing my own work about this is that our lives begin twice. Once on the day we are born, and then on the day when we accept that the life that we live is ours to choose. There are a lot of things that life has given us, our fate things, your gender, your race, 
your sexual orientation, your nationality, the economic status into which you were born, and on, no, 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 no. But beyond that, a lot is ours to choose. How do we do that? Especially, how do we construct a mature spirituality, which is what this class today is about? So, as I mentioned earlier, to get into an answer to that question, you have to go to the issue of authority. How do you know what's true? What's true? Who tells us? How do they know? When we came into this world, the tribe into which we were born told us what was true. Um, if neither of your parents ever said to you when you push back on something because I said so, you're a unicorn. <laughs> that was the authority, parental authority, because I said so. I recognized <clears throat> very early on that there were people who grew up in other tribes that got other truths. Which is lucky, the tribe I was born into had the real truth. <laughs> Just goes without saying. So. so Joseph Campbell, the man who made the study of myth famous in this country, the man who coined the phrase, follow your bliss, the man who was consultant on one of the most compelling myths in American culture, Star Wars, Joseph Campbell once said, myth is other people's religion. How many wars have been fought in world history over the belief <clears throat> that my myth is the right one? My God is the right God. My religion is the right religion. Our political system is the best one. We're going to get you to have our God, our religion, our political system. So right now, we live in a country where tribalism is growing. And I think this is a reflection of a lack of maturity. People in cultures who regress into earlier stages of development or who, in spite of their chronological age, never bother to grow up are frightened, insecure people. And the way many people deal with this anxiety is to go for certainty. And if they're not sure what is certain, then they will look to someone else to tell them. Some religious figure or some political figure or somebody else. In one of his books, Union analyst James Hollis, whom I've quoted a couple of times today, uh, says, one cannot overemphasize the power of human anxiety to commit the most appalling gymnastics of mind to justify anything. Now think about what's happening on our political scene right now in light of this particular statement. Or look at what passes for religion in much of America. Much of it is a really rather pathetic encounter with the sacred, with grace, um, with coming to deal with a cosmos that we know now we cannot possibly understand or comprehend. <clears throat> I think religion shows up two major ways in our culture. Uh, I know there are exceptions from this, and uh, we suffer from taking the prideful position that we are the exception to the rule. One, one popular form of religion ends up infantilizing people. That message is, <clears throat> you got to be born again. And after you get born again, you need to be an infant for a while while we tell you what to do, what to believe, how to behave, and where to give your money. It, it's amazing, and <clears throat> pardon me, I referenced uh, a, a movie uh, last week that said something about how um, this man who was a minister in Oklahoma came to realize that God's love is universal. He was a pastor of a megachurch, and when he announced that God's love is universal, people in the church got very upset because it meant that there were people not going to hell. Now think about that for a minute, that good Christian people are upset that other people aren't going to hell. The other popular religion in American culture, though it's not only here in America, is that religion which tells people what they want to hear. 
It is God's deepest desire to make you wealthy. God wants you to have that speedboat, that extra house, whatever it is. That's what God's deepest desire. The trick, though, is that you've got to give us a lot of money before God will give you back. Now, my point is that in constructing a mature religion, which is not a piece of cake, it's just easier to let somebody else do it for you. Or not do it at all. So the first step in constructing a mature spirituality is to realize at least two things. Number one, that we have inherited a secular religious myth. Just by being born in any culture, we inherit a myth that belongs to the culture and then to the group that we're a part of. That makes sense? We got to accept that that's a given for the way that we grow up. And second, our inherited myth, we have to acknowledge, is not sufficient to carry us into the future of love, honesty, and freedom that we say we want. Now, I think this point is apparent when you look at the things that are happening in our culture or things that are not happening in our culture. The things that led us in here to acknowledge some weeks ago that we are heading in, if not into, the dark night of the soul. The dishonesty in our culture, the killings in our culture. I heard on the radio this week on NPR, <clears throat> there are over two murders a day in the city of Chicago. Now, are you with me about these two things? Because the class is built on your getting these before we go forward. If you're not, we'll just stop, clarify. We inherited a myth, and it ain't working. Now, <clears throat> the people who wrote and composed the Gospel of John, they inherited a myth too. And it wasn't working for them either. And if you want to know the religion of Jesus, you've got to know the Jewish myth that he inherited, that his, the people around him inherited. You've got to know the Jewish history. You've got to know the Jewish belief system and how that belief system came into being over a long period of time. And you have to know the aspirations of the Jewish people. Now, one major thing to get is that aspiration that the Jewish people had for a Messiah. There was going to be somebody who was going to come and rescue them from the injustices and the oppression that they had felt, not just from the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus, but all the way back at the beginning, from the beginning of the Jewish history. Um, <clears throat> we got that myth working in our country. Many evangelical Christians have looked to Donald Trump to be that savior for them. And if you don't want to go into politics, just look at the revival of the popularity of all the Marvel superheroes that are on the screens now. Heroes out there that are going to come and save an earth that is at peril or whatever it is. Now, there's nothing wrong with myth. Um, I would argue that a mythological understanding of ourselves and of our journey is essential. The question is, is the myth we live coming from a mature spirituality? And concurrent with that is, what is a mature spirituality? Now, we, we're not going to uh, get through talking about this today, but I just want to mainly introduce the notion of myth and its importance, and then to connect that understanding of myth into our deep dive into John, and more particularly into the notion of resurrection. So the Johannine community broke with their inherited myth. They took elements from that myth, and they built a new one. And <clears throat> for us to follow that example is going to be an enormous undertaking. I got confidence in you. You can do this. I want to quote Hollis again. <clears throat> Never in recorded history has there been such a mythological crisis 
for so many. Never in human history have so many been free to decide their path and what constitutes authority for them. So what's a mature spirituality? Well, I want to start, I'm going to give you some more ideas later on, but I want to start with the fact that, first of all, it's not tribal. You know something has gone really, really wrong with a religious understanding when it leads people to hate other people. Anne Lamont says that we can conclude that we've made our God in our image when it turns out our God hates the same people we do. <laughs> now, again, I think this is a result of anxiety. Standing in the face of sacred mystery or grace is anxiety-provoking. And most people don't want to feel anxious. They don't want that level of anxiety. We want to understand stuff. And, and more, um, we want to control things. But in doing so, we remove ourselves from the presence of mystery. And the myth that mystery is intended to convey. Okay? You with me? I should have done something simpler today, maybe. I don't know. So we're born into this world, not of our choosing. We have a survival need which causes us to, to adapt. Adaptation leads us to become dualistic people. In, out, right, wrong, up or bad, safe or not safe. All those things are survival skills. But before that, before we develop that dualistic skill, we live in a world of awe and mystery. This is why when you pick up an infant, it's such a holy experience, you know? I had a professor in grad school say, never hesitate to flirt with an infant because you are looking into the face of God. You know that, those of you who are parents, you know that. Now, in the growing up process, we gather and are given bits and pieces of information about God, and we construct our image of God. Some of our understandings of God are useful and some are not. Much is wrong. Some of it is really harmful to us and to other people. Um... More often, the church's accounts of encounters with God have been bent out of shape by prejudice. Now, God, although I'm trying very hard to use the word grace, but God, whatever else might be said about grace, God is two things that are very paradoxical. First of all, God is not out there. One of the few things that I hope are remembered about my teachings here is this. God is not out there. The other is is. You have to have a daily spiritual practice. And the other is you have to use your turn signals. There you are. At the same time, grace is beyond our reach. Any words I or anyone else says about God are, as the Buddha famously said, like fingers pointing to the moon. They are not the moon itself. So nothing in this talk or any other is like a scientific description or di dictionary definition of the sacred. And just acknowledging that may be the single most important thing when it comes to understanding what we call a knowledge of God. God is not out there. God is beyond our grasp. Both are true. So I want to make some suggestions to you today about what and how to go about constructing a mature spirituality. But before I do that, I want to say some things about myth. A myth is a concrete presentation of the union of the finite with the infinite. 
Now, usually a myth shows up as a story. My father was a wandering Aramanian. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Usually myths show up in stories. But myths can be ceremonies. There will be one there was one celebrated today across the way in the cathedral, and there will be again 11 called the Eucharist. That's a myth. It's a story put together. The myth can be a building. Like for me, Gothic cathedrals are mythic structures. I go into one like the cathedral in Lyon, Spain, and um, I wonder when I step in there, where, where did this come from? Who thought of this? It took 400 years to do this? How did that happen? It's a mythic structure. A myth can be a costume. A myth can be a ritual. So in the Christian tradition, we see myths represented in the baptism of a child. There's the myth of the crossing of the Red Sea. There's the myth of the flood. There's the myth of all that wrapped up in that very simple ritual. Myths grow out of the culture in which they were created. And, um, and there was a time in uh, the culture of the Western world where animal sacrifice made sense. Before that, human sacrifice. Thank God we don't do that anymore. But animal sacrifice doesn't make sense for us. And because of the culture in which we live, the phrase that's popular in evangelical Christianity, being washed in the blood of the Lamb, doesn't make as much sense to us as it did to my grandfather who slaughtered his own pigs and hogs, right? It's a different culture out of which we now, the people who came to be known as the Jews were liturgical geniuses. If you've ever participated in a Seder meal, you know this to be true. They had a story that developed out of a tribal mentality at about the time of the agricultural revolution when things were really happening 10,000 years ago in human culture. They grew this story in competition with other tribes that their god, was the only God. And that this God demanded fierce loyalty. And plus, this God had picked the Jews as, their, as God's special people and commanded them to subdue all the lands and all the people around them. Does this sound familiar? I mean, this is the American myth. That this was a male god um, still shapes all of monotheistic religions all over the world. Look at what happens in Islam with women because Allah is male. Allah commands male things. Look at what happens in the Roman Catholic Church. No women priests. I mean, I mean, we've even had in the Protestant Church a big struggle with this because of our understanding of God. So doctrines and laws were developed to explain the intricacies of this myth and how this myth applied to the everyday lives of people who inhabited that story. Now, I've used Judaism to explain the myth, but what I just said applies to all religions everywhere. All religions have mythic understandings, and then they develop rules and regulations to make sure people live inside that particular myth. And because we, living in the Western world, we inherited a different myth, and that myth, I believe, is kind of in our DNA. Myths are in our bodies. They go beyond conscious thinking, so that tomorrow, on the 4th of July, um, for many people, there will be participations and celebrations involving the 4th. And there will be parades, and there will be the flag, and there will be fireworks, and there will be patriotic music. And some of this will move people to tears. And they're not even aware why. It's because the myth 
that we have associated with American culture that gets celebrated on the 4th of July. It's a great thing. It's very moving for us. There are people who go to weddings who don't even know the bride and the groom who weep at weddings because of the myth that is involved in these two people coming together to join their lives together and from the whole world that is represented by the congregation. All right. Now, we live in a culture where people, many people have no appreciation for myth whatsoever. So that if you tell them the story of resurrection in the Christian tradition, their response is, did that really happen? They don't have an appreciation for the story. It's for the facts that are involved. So they miss the reality of the truth of the myth. Or they'll ask a political question. By political, I mean belonging to the people. And they will say, is that story our tradition or somebody else's? Now, you can narrow this down when it comes to Christian fundamentalism, although it's applied to Jewish fundamentalism and um, Islamic fundamentalism as well. If you don't believe the factual nature of the myth, you're out. You're a heretic. You're someone who doesn't belong in the group. So last week, Holly and I talked about spiritual practice. And those who engage in spiritual practice, particularly contemplation, seek to be nourished by mythic resources. And they do so by looking beyond the question of what happened. Is this true? Is, does this belong to the question of what does this myth mean, and more importantly, how does this myth connect me to the mystery so that it can sustain me and give me guidance for the journey that is ahead. That's what meditation is meant to accomplish, contemplation. So all myths contain multiple truths, and all myths are about us. They're not about something else. They're about us. So to receive the spiritual power of any myth, we have to understand that the myth is about revealing a deep truth about who we are, about who you are. The stories are about us. For example, I'll give you one example. In the Christian tradition, there is the myth of the Annunciation. Angel comes to Mary and says, Hail Mary, blessed one. You've been designated to give birth to the holy. What this myth means is that grace seeks to bring alive in us and forth from us the sacred. I'll say that another way. This myth says that nothing has to come to us from the outside. It's already here. It has to be born within us. And as one Christian mystic, John of the Cross, puts it, this is so beautiful. He says, eventually we will find, as foreshadowed at our birth, we are lying in the manger as food for the world. That's what Jesus in the manger as a myth means. Not that Jesus was poor and born a manger. He's food for the world. So are we intended to be. It's a great story. But we shortchange it by saying, would that really happen? Oh. So there are a lot of things I could say about myth as a way to educate us and introduce us to the central myth of the Christian story, which we're going to get into next week about resurrection. So one of the reasons that this is so hard is that we've not done the work in our churches to help people create mature spirituality. So what is mature spirituality? That's what I want to end with today. Well, for one thing, mature spirituality is a spirituality that we ourselves assume personal responsibility for, and we, it's not something we embrace simply because our tribe told us to. You got to do your homework. The advice that Buddha gave to his students is applicable to anything I say or that you hear across the way or you hear on 
religious radio or TV. Is it true? How do I know? Go check it out. Look it up. Before you pass on things, somebody said that you get on Facebook or Instagram, go to Snopes and check it out. See if there's any truth to it. Is it wise? Is it useful? Does it participate in the truth? Just because some religious person said it doesn't mean it's correct. I could be wrong. For me to continue fiercely to believe the things I was taught in a Southern Baptist church in Tennessee when, when I was in junior high would be like to continuing to wear the clothes I wore then. They don't fit. Although I did have a woman tell me a few weeks ago that she can steer wear the, wear the earrings she wore in high school. <laughs> Many people are trying to wear the shoes they wore in the sixth grade when it comes to religion. Second, a mature spirituality relinquishes the need for certainty. As I've said before, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certitude. Uncertainty is not comfortable, but neither mature spirituality, uh, neither, neither is mature spirituality comfortable. Mature spirituality doesn't make us feel right. If it's successful, a terrible word to apply to it, but if it's successful, it makes us feel awestruck. Wow. Third, mature spirituality embraces the value of ongoing growth. There is no magical other out there who is going to come along at night and tuck us in bed and say, there, there, everything's going to be okay. One of the mystics, um, I learned this uh, from Richard Rohr, said um, he, he kept praying over and over and over on the grounds of the monastery, God, who am I, God? Who are you? God, who am I? God, who are you? Open-ended all the time. <clears throat> As you have heard, may have heard, there have been um, a multitude of canceled flights this past week. And this weekend, as I understand, to be a nightmare in air travel for people. So I recently had a dear friend tell me this story. One of our Texas politicians who is elected to represent you in Washington, I don't want to claim any responsibility for this, he was on a flight that was canceled, and the announcement was made to all the passengers that this had occurred, and that the airline was working diligently to get them accommodated to other flights as soon as possible. So our elected official went up to the podium where the airline personnel were just working to get their jobs done. It had been a long day, it had been a hard day, a day filled with dealing with frustrated and frustrating passengers. And so this politician demanded to be put on the next flight out. And he was told, we'll get you on the next flight out. Just we're trying to accommodate everybody. And with this, he slammed his hand down on the podium and said to the young woman behind the counter, do you have any idea who I am? And the young woman looked up, startled, stared at him for a moment, and then in an act of pure genius, picked up the microphone and announced to the entire lounge, there's a gentleman at the podium who does not know who he is. I know who you hope you wish that was. Huh? <laughs> so the genius of Jesus was that he could look past what people thought defined them and say to them, I see the you you really are, and when you have faith in what I see in you, you will be set free. This is the secret to his healing. I see you, you are not defined by what you think limits you. So Jesus himself comes to an understanding of himself, 
of who he is. And he goes, this is a myth, into the wilderness to hammer this understanding out. And he has to deal with all of those things that the ego has to deal with in coming to understand. Do I make a deal with the world about my identity? Or do I embrace my givenness? And he embraced his givenness. And when he came out, he said, I have an insight into who I am. I am a precious child of God, and so are you. And that's what he based his ministry on. And no one was exempt. No one was outside of that. The uh, fourth mark of a mature spirituality lies in, in embodying the values of peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. What attracted people to the community that the Johannine community created was not, oh, wow, look at what they believe. Look at how right they are. It was, look at how they love each other. Look at how they help one another. Look at how full of joy they are. I want to be part of that. Now, my personal testimony is that these guidelines are usually comforting. And sometimes they are terrifying. Much of our culture is driven by eliminating the mysterious, the confusing. We don't want anything scary or unfamiliar outside of our comfort zone. Dualistic mind is not naked presence to presence. Dualistic mind is very controlling and therefore it's very limited in what it can see. I don't know about you, but I would neither have any respect for or need of a God I could figure out. Even St. Augustine in the 4th century said, if you understand it, then it is not God. So, many of the sayings of Jesus are incredibly mysterious, even confusing. If you doubt this, get a copy of the Gospel of Thomas and read it. You'll be brain sore by page 2. Jesus never once offered one simple metaphor, story. Everything he said demands further reflection and journey into, if in seminary I had turned in a single paper as open to misunderstanding as most of Jesus' teachings are, I would have never graduated. Jesus didn't seem concerned about clarity if that was his goal for people to have perfect understanding. If that was his goal, he failed. Mature spirituality knows it doesn't know. It's the very opposite of fundamentalism. Can you imagine what our churches and our politics would be like if only it had this kind of humility? Both politics and religion are filled with people on every side of the, every question who are so certain there's no openness to mystery that's always unfolding, mystery which is not understandable. So mature spirituality requires us to question both our assumptions and our conclusions and to stand in the presence of the mystery of that which we cannot understand, but in our gut we know understands us. It's the opposite of narcissism. You look at the parables of Jesus, and uh, you get this, I mean, really unexpected outcomes, right? A good Samaritan, are you kidding me? Laborers who work just a few minutes who get paid as much as those who started at the first of the day, are you out of your mind? A child about as gone wrong as possible, as deserving as, of harsh punishment as possible, welcomed with open arms and made royalty, where is the fairness in that? So what I'm, the one thing I'm saying is, is that we get into the house, too, with, there are two ways to get in the house next door. You can um, go around the world and end up there, which is very difficult. has a lot of hardships and you're likely to get very lost and even forget where you're going. Or you can just walk into the house next door, which is also not quite as easy as it sounds. Because it's so unbelievable. 
That's a, that's a tough time we have with it. Oh, you can't be serious. This is all there is to it. So the people who produced the Gospel of John saw that the religion that they had been given had devolved into that first way. Perhaps at one time, given the culture and maturity of those who created the story, it was wise and useful, but their experience of Jesus showed them that it had outlived its usefulness. They saw that he was inviting them into a much larger, much different world. All they had to do was to step into it. And they got the message. We don't have to work at being connected to God. We already are. It's not something yet to be. It's right here, right now. They said the meaning of the word with us is that God is with us. It's the meaning of grace over law. We don't have to strive for what we've been looking for. It's already a gift of grace right here, right now. And I got to tell you that I think that this is the gift of the dark night of the soul. That it can help us to see this. That which we ourselves are powerless to attain. Grace out of unchangeable and infinite love has simply given. This is precisely the good news of the gospel of the Christian myth. There is nothing you can do to escape this union. Except be unaware of it. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so I'll see you back here next week. Watch your stuff and have a good 4th of July. See you. Thank you.